Lovely to see you all here this evening. I realize the days are getting shorter, the nights are getting longer and darker and colder. And um, this time of year, I I think the numbers do diminish and I always find that a little bit sad. (laughs) We miss seeing you on Sunday night. So please rest assured that uh, we will endeavor to keep the Dhamma Hall uh, nice and warm and uh, accommodating on Sunday nights, and you're always very welcome. This is the first Sunday of the month of November, and which means that there's a new Dhammapada verse on our page of the calendar. Verse 280 says, If while still young and strong, you procrastinate when you should act, indulging in heedless fantasies, the wisdom of the way will never become clear. If while still young and strong you procrastinate when you should act, indulging in heedless fantasies, the wisdom of the way will never become clear. But one of the first things that uh, this uh, verse brings to mind is something that uh, my father used to say a lot when I was a child. And when I was a very small boy during a period, it was fashionable that in our school uh, that we all had autograph books and uh, just little sort of small A6 things, and we want to gather all the autographs, and probably, I don't remember now, but probably in, in Morrinsville in those days, it was Don Clark and Brian Clark, who you probably don't know, but they're some of the world's greatest ever football players, and Ponty Reed, he was the captain of the All Blacks for many years. You probably don't realise they came from Morrinsville, um, although you may have watched the rugby yesterday, I don't know, and New Zealand beat... England, but anyway, not getting too distracted on that point. I would gather autographs, and and I think um, I think my memory is that the first autograph I asked for was for my father, and uh, and he wrote in there on the first page of my autograph book, uh, "Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today." I think that's a great thing if you've got somebody who who you look up to, who points it out to you. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Um, I value that my father taught me that because procrastination is not a virtue. Um, other words come to mind as well when I, I look at this verse and like tardiness. It's not a word that we use very much these days, but I think it's a good word, tardiness. We're, we're always just kind of hesitating or irresolute. Uh, although we know there's something to do, there's something to get on with, you know, we, in all aspects of our life, whether it's mending a relationship or whether it's uh, fixing the drafts in the window because winter's coming on and you're wasting energy, or whether it's getting up in the morning to spend 20 minutes sitting meditation before you go to work. We all know there's something to do, there's something to be getting on with. But... Procrastination, hesitation, 
uh, tardiness, irresolution. This is, these are something that uh, the Buddha was flagging up. He was holding up and saying, watch out for these because you know, getting lost in these, the wisdom of the way will never become clear. You know, if, we, if we get caught in, in this habit, you know, whether the habit is rooted in laziness, which it can be, uh, the habit of procrastination can be just rooted in laziness, just you know, not wanting to bother. Or there could be other reasons. There could well be uh, personal, emotional reasons of fear, or anxiety. Whatever it is, it's something we want to uh, recognize. And if while still young and strong, you procrastinate uh, when you should act. So whether you're young and strong or not, that's not necessarily the only thing worth focusing on. But when we should act and we procrastinate, of course we don't want to get into being all judgmental about that and heavy on ourselves and so getting caught in old stories of you know, how hopeless we are or whatever. That's not why the Buddha's flagging it up. That wasn't his style. But rather just notice this. Just quietly notice. Oh, that's this is procrastination. This is putting off what can be done now. And uh, we might need to ask questions, why am I doing it? Or maybe sometimes we just need to just, just do it. In uh, my early years as a monk, I'm very grateful Ajahn Sumato used to, used to give these early morning rousing Dhamma talks, jump out of bed with alacrity. You know, we would have, we would, I think the bell would go at 3 o'clock in winter and we'd be up at 4 o'clock and in the shrine room at Chetters, or maybe the bell got four and we're up at five, I don't know, but I think it was three and up at four in the middle of winter and we'll be out there walking meditation in the snow together, walking, come back and sit again and he would give these talks about in the morning, jump out of bed with alacrity. And part of me used to think, oh, go back to the military, will you? I just used to, these American military maniacs, they go, give me a break, I don't, I don't need it. And But... There's something in that, and we hear that, we hear the truth as well. That, that just think, oh, I'll just lie here a little bit longer. And as Ajahn Chai should say, sleep is delicious. You know, just sleep is, can be so delicious. And if we indulge in it, <laughs> well, uh, we, the regret comes later on. And so the Buddha, out of his compassion and wisdom, is just holding this up and saying, watch out for procrastination. Yeah. And uh, the inability or the unwillingness to act when that's what's called for. To spend quality time reflecting on how well am I doing. Uh, soon, what are we now? Are we getting into well into November? And so it's not that many weeks, maybe six or seven weeks, and it'll be New Year's Eve again. And as you all know, we have our our um, forgiveness and renewal ritual here on New Year's Eve where, where we reflect on the year that's gone, how well did I do? And then we make determinations, uh, aspirations for the year ahead. A uh, very skillful thing and that's, uh, that's uh, one of the highlights of the year when everybody comes here and sits together until midnight and we go through this together. And, uh, but we don't want to do it just once a year, the, I think, to regularly, in fact, you could do it every day or once a week or once a month to reflect, how well am I doing? How well am I doing? Are the habits to avoid reality 
to avoid this, to avoid what I feel is really called for in this moment, are those habits getting weaker or are they getting stronger? Mm -hmm. Am I being more patient with irritating people, whoever they might be, or more patient with myself, more forgiving of myself? So acting when that's what's called for is something you really give quality time to contemplate. And, and we all know, uh, basically, um, what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. That is looking at and recognizing and freeing ourselves from greed, aversion, and delusion. These are the, the poisons that the Buddha identified. These are the obstructions. These are the pollutions that's, that get in the way of clear seeing. And these are the uh, limitations that we habitually bring to our experience of the moment so we don't see clearly and we don't act by way of body, speech and mind in a way that is truly beautiful, truly beneficial for ourselves and others. So recognizing uh, for ourselves, uh, this, is, this is where and when I need to act. This is where and when and how I need to act. And we can... Uh, reflect on the, the greed. Yeah. How am I doing? How well am I doing with acting on greed by way of body, speech, and mind? Yeah. Acting, inhibiting the tendency to follow greed by way of body really means questioning our addictions, looking at our addictions, mm. not looking at them with judgment and and just. Uh, indulging in heedless fantasies about how we could be otherwise, but rather looking at them with mindfulness, with, with uh, like the Buddha talked about, the way a mother looks upon her only child, that, that kindliness, that caring, that, that forgiving, that, that willingness to over and over again, as the, you know, the child is trying to learn something, whether it's learning to read or learning to walk. You know, the child learning to walk and it falls over and, and, and what is the attitude we bring to that? We reach out and, and offer it a hand to lift it up again, you know, to begin again. And that encouraging, that, that, that heartful, loving, caring encouragement. This is the, the disposition of somebody who's following the Buddha's path of practice. In the heart of loving kindness, which you all know he, he spoke a lot about. And, well, likewise with ourselves, that when we observe... Uh, greed by way of body, you know, with our habits, our addictions, whatever they are, whether it's chocolate or, or, or downloading files onto our iPod or, or getting the latest gadget or, or overspending at your favorite restaurant or, or whatever the addictions are. And again, it's coming up to Christmas, New Year. You say, oh boy, I can eat all the chocolate and, and marzipan that I want. Uh, I don't eat chocolate actually, so it's easy to refer to it. But whatever the addictions might be, uh, what needs to be done, acting in terms of dhamma, is recognizing it, not procrastinating, not holding back, and saying, oh, well, just one more slab of chocolate. <laughs> you know, just one more slab of chocolate, it'll be okay. Yeah. Or via speech, uh, acting to remove, acting to free our hearts from the uh, habits of, of greedy speech, you know, like flattery, for instance. When you, you, know, you really want something from somebody and so you butter them up and, and 
And if you look at it and you see it and you recognize, well, that, that's not true. That's not true speech. That's not right speech. That's not appropriate speech. And it's a habit. Yeah. And so the right effort, the, the appropriate way to approach it, the, the way to act, the thing to do, is how to withdraw energy from that, how to, how to free ourselves from it. Well, one of the things we can do is just to see how, how it feels when we do it. Like uh, with all the precepts, you know, when we don't, uh, as Buddhists, we don't take the precepts because we expect ourselves to be perfect, but we take the precepts, so we've got these boundaries, very clear boundaries, very nice, clear boundaries, very straightforward, very simple. There's only five, there's not a lot, and, and then you stay within them. You're determined to stay within them. And then when you bounce up against them, or maybe you transgress them, then you know. And it's just, oh, right, okay, so I cross it. So actually, I, I, I didn't do what I determined to do in with speech. You know, maybe you're this exaggerating or lying. You know, telling little porkies here and there. And you say, oh, one more little porky is going to be okay. But the next thing you know, you've got a big, long Pinocchio nose. You know, little porkies, it just builds up into a habit. And so, again, if we reflect on it and when we see ourselves doing it, exaggerating, telling lies, whatever, uh, gossiping, you see, uh, and we're doing it for reasons of greed. We're wanting to get something and, well, with the mind, you see, how do we act in terms of Dhamma on the level of mind when it comes to looking at greed? No. We do have to be very honest. Yeah. Our addictions, our mental addictions, we've got physical and verbal addictions, but our mental addictions, they show up when we come to sit quietly. Yeah. It might be really nice just to sit and stop thinking for a while. So you try it, whether you use a meditation object or whether you just sit in your armchair and, and just abide there quietly, being aware, being present, here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free awareness, just knowing. And then the mind is, well, what about this? What about that? You can think about this, you can think about that. And, and these are compulsions. This is great. Compulsions. Whether it's sensual indulgence like you know you live the celebrate renunciate life and most monks their minds get caught up and young monks their minds get caught up in sensuality old monks as well for that matter sometimes it's you know it depends maybe some monks and they just spend all the time thinking about you know computer dynamics programs that they can be writing or correcting or or altering or studying or understanding and but if we can't stop it this is, the, this is the barometer. If you want to know, is it greed or not? Can we choose to inhibit it? With body, speech, or mind, this is a, a way of gauging, is this greed or not? And so you ask yourself, can I choose to not act, not speak, not think about this? And if you can choose to not act, to not download this file, to not go out and buy that, if you can choose to not speak, if you can choose to not think, and really sit there and feel the whole body-mind here and now, reflecting, the mind is alert, and it's not gone numb upstairs, you know, it's just kind of phasing out, which is something meditators often do. So no bright, alert, and just feeling this present moment. Maybe feeling the compulsion, I want, I want this craving, this, this raga, this, this longing, this ache uh, for, for 
whatever, sensuality, for becoming, for getting rid of. Maybe you can feel it, but can we be with it? That's acting when we need to. What's procrastination is, well, just one more little, you know, one more little snooze or one more little slab of chocolate or one more fantasy that I will just go along with her. And, well, the Buddha points out, not that you're, you know, a bad person or whatever, no, but that the wisdom of the way will never become clear. So. Or likewise, acting to free ourselves, to free the hearts from aversion. It will. Dosa. On the level of body, again, when we make mistakes, you know, one, way of, one way of learning to release ourselves from the habit of acting on ill will is to become very clear, very, very sensitive to the consequences of it. Because I don't know if any of you have this experience, but I know. For me, it is just... I find ill will is such an ugly condition. It's just so painful. You know, if you've ever had it happen when you're in a place of really stillness, you play really real okayness, and then up comes the fire, the passion of resentment or indignation or rage or, or ill will or, or downright hatred or anger, whatever label we want to put on it, or a subtle form of ill will, which is boredom. People often miss this one. Boredom's a great object of investigation. It's a subtle resentment to nothing interesting happening. It's not that there's nothing happening with boredom. If we're not quick, we think there's nothing happening. There is something happening. Resentment for nothing interesting happening. And there's a very subtle and particular type of ill will. So if we really want to act instead of procrastinate with regards to freeing the heart from ill will, from resentment, one of the best ways to do it is to, have, when it's happened then to really spend time feeling it. What does that feel like? You know, to be alone. Don't go off and ring up a friend or send off an email or go and chat with somebody. Just go and sit quietly in your room and feel, having, lost, having gotten lost in ill will and acted on it, how does that feel? Like, for instance, if somebody has been unpleasant to you and um, by way of body or speech, and then they make some gesture of reconciliation, Perhaps they, they, maybe they send you an email or, or they ask if they can come around and see you and you have a sense that they're trying to make up for what they've done but out of retaliation you just don't want to see you. What does that feel like? It's basically it's just fighting ill will with ill will, anger with anger, hatred with hatred. There's no end to it. Another way of freeing ourselves, of acting to free ourselves free from to, uh, acting to free ourselves from, from ill will, resentment, is to look at those who have freed themselves, or much more than we have. And I don't know if any of you have seen that. I think it's a television program, or maybe it's a video, I don't know, of a, uh, a lady who lives in London called Alice Summers, and she's a pianist, and she's the eldest uh, Auschwitz survivor in the world. And this November, she's 107, and she is such a beautiful lady. Such a beautiful, beautiful lady. And, and she just lives in this little flat in London. And, but her piano playing is still so beautiful that sometimes people would just go and stand outside her window and listen to it. And if you do ever see this video, it was just so inspiring to somebody who went through what she went through. Okay, so she survived Auschwitz because the Nazis basically put her in this little 
place where they kept some of the artists to make music and they filmed it and they sent it around the world as propaganda to show the world how well they were treating the Jews. They weren't treating the Jews well. She knew um, what was going on, as did other friends of hers. Uh, in this program, there's also a cellist who talks about how when she was being tattooed and stripped and head-shaven and they were asking her, you know, what did she used to do? She said, I used to play the cello. And the other prisoners said, oh, that's wonderful. You can be saved. And she was taken out of the queue, wasn't sent to the gas chamber. She was sent off to be the what the Nazis considered the entertainers of the camp. And But if you if you do get to see this, uh, or such people, the Dalai Lama is another person. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi is another person. You read their biographies, or if you get to see video clips of them or meet them, you can see there's something there that is truly beautiful. And so to admire somebody who's got a heart that is free from ill will is something we can do, something we can positively do to free our own hearts. Now, if all we do is, is watch nasty, nasty videos or play nasty games and, and read horrible books and so on, there's another part of us that's feeding on that. But so to nourish the heart within us that longs to be free, we can do that by, by delighting, by admiring people like Ella Summers. And the Germans who come to visit her now sometimes, that she says the reporters, they, all, they often want to ask her how bad it was and how angry she was. And she said, I refuse to get angry. She said, I refuse to get angry with what they did to us because I know what will happen to me if I get angry. From the heart that's oriented towards Dhamma, towards truth, you see the beauty of a heart that's free from ill will, that really lifts us. For this particular woman, she says uh, music is her religion and her commitment to it has, has helped protect her heart uh, in that way. And so on the level of body, you know, to observe and to see when we make mistakes and to admire those who uh, have uh, some freedom from ill will. And then also to use our, obviously, to use our formal meditation practice. You know, to, the Buddha presents the teachings on the heart of loving, cultivating the heart of loving kindness as a way of protecting the heart. When the heart is imbued with loving kindness, then ill will can't get to us. The habits, the world we live in. And so learning the place of cultivating a heart of loving kindness and to see its function, not being afraid to make much of loving Beings really dwelling on whatever image imbues the heart with gratitude and joy and kindness and softens the heart you know, to really appreciate that this is possible. You know, this is not procrastinating. This is acting when we need to act. And then delusion. The, um, the difficult thing with, with delusion is that usually we're not we don't know when we're deluded. That, uh, with greed, we can know when we're greedy. With ill will or anger, we can know when we've got ill will or anger in the heart. And certainly we can know if we act or speak on it. But with delusion, it's very tricky because part of the nature of deluded is you just don't know. And, um, but one of the things we can do is, again, as with the others, is with hindsight to be willing to learn from it. To, to not, not be in a hurry to judge ourselves 
for having been deluded. We, we have such strong tendencies to take a position against ourselves. It's so easy to really feel substantial and to feel like I'm somebody when I've got a view. I know that I am bad and to really get off on that. I know that I was really deluded and I'm a really deluded, stupid pe- person. Uh, sometimes people will come to me and, 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 and speak in ways, oh, I'm so deluded. I'm so deluded. So, well, if you, you know, if you know that you're deluded, you're not so deluded. I mean, the really deluded ones don't know they're deluded. So if you've got some idea that you've been deluded in the past, that's great. I'm happy to hear that. But you don't want to compound it by just, oh, I'm so deluded. You know, we don't need to take a position against ourselves when we see greed, aversion, and delusion in our hearts, but rather to cultivate the readiness to begin again if we see we've been deluded. How, how willing are we to not judge ourselves when we see that we blew it? How willing are we to do that? I think it's a great question, you know, to, something to reflect on. We, we catch ourselves having been greedy or by body, speech or mind or angry by body, speech or mind. Or with hindsight we see, oh, I was really deluded. Just to catch ourselves, are we dumping an opinion on ourselves, eh? I shouldn't have been this way. I should have known better. And at that moment, we catch ourselves then to pull right back. You say, well, I don't know how helpful that is. You know? Does it really feel good? Does it feel great? Does it, you know, what the Buddha wanted to do was to make us, help us feel great. The Buddha wanted us to feel really good. He wanted us to be really happy. That's what the Buddha's teaching is about. And so when we really give ourselves a bad time for having been greedy or angry or deluded, does it make you feel great? No, well, that's, that's not practice. That's not Dhamma. So the way to make ourselves feel great when we've caught ourselves having been lost in delusion is to be willing to learn from it. Say, all oh, right. Oh, yeah, that was deluded. I was deluded there. Yep, I had it completely wrong. Yep. Well, I'm really going to try better next time. I'm really... And maybe sometimes it means you need to tell somebody else about it as well. And that's a, that's a skill one can cultivate. In the beginning, it may not be so easy me doesn't want to admit that I ever get anything wrong but if we recognize that that rigidity leaves us very vulnerable and and always having to defend ourselves and promote ourselves that that what is more beautiful what is more appealing to the heart is when we can bow that's one 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 of the many good reasons why we learn to bow as Buddhists to to lower ourselves to soften the back to be gentle to lower ourselves in front of that which was truly free of greed, aversion, and delusion, the Buddha. And so if we have that subtlety, that easiness, that willingness to learn from our mistakes, well, then the heart is gladdened. And that's an inspiration for next time. If every time we catch ourselves making a mistake, we then give ourselves a bad time for it, well, that's a disincentive for being more mindful and restrained next time. But if what happens when we catch ourselves being greedy or angry or deluded, we actually feel good because we're honest and open up to it and pleased to see our limitations, well, that good feeling actually encourages us to be more mindful next time. So whatever the delusion, whether it's delusion that it's just something that meant you did something or said something or, or some really crazy mental idea that you got caught up in. You can be caught up in something for years and sometimes you find in the monastic community... 
young monks or it probably happens to the nuns as well. They, you come into this thing and you give it the best you've got and then as the years go by, uh, you just keep kind of plowing away and then, then maybe something happens it's just spontaneously or on retreat or whatever, you suddenly you see in a different way, you see that all this time you've been playing a game with yourself. You've just been you know, caught up in some egotistical, self-promoting, pathetic story. You call it a spiritual story, but it's pathetic. And you see it. Now, at that point, if you're properly prepared, then you see it and you feel good about seeing it. You say, oh, thank goodness I've seen it. My goodness. Now, if you're not properly prepared, then the bad news is that at that point you just say, well, what a waste of time that was. All those years of practice, I was obviously just wasting my time. And then you just leave and go off and do something else. Well, if you weren't practicing, you probably would never have gotten to the point where you realized that you've been playing a game with yourself all these, time, all these years. I mean, it's very difficult to see delusion as delusion. It's very difficult to let go of the addiction to me and my way and to pull back and really see it for what it is and just say, that is delusion. That's very difficult. That takes a lot of practice. So if we start to see this, we want to feel good about it and, and be keen to encourage and support ourselves and each other. That's another important thing we can do about a way we can act in approaching delusion is to be good friends with each other. Really, when it comes to addressing delusion in the mind, we really need good friends. Again, as we're saying, to, to know we're deluded is tricky because the state of delusion is not knowing. But if you've got good friends, you've cultivated wise companions in the spiritual life, not just friends to go to the races with or, or to clubs with or whatever, but people who help you really lift up that which is virtuous, to, to nourish and nurture wholesome aspirations within us if we've got such companions that when we're deluded, they're going to maybe offer us a reflection and say, you know, you want to look at this from another perspective? Or maybe we ourselves have realized, you know, how deluded we've been and, and we're feeling pulled down by it. But we've got a good friend who, who sees the mistake of getting caught up on those heedless fantasies of, of, of the story of how bad we are. A good friend will actually come to us in that moment will just help lift us up. That's what good friends are for. But essentially, I would say the, uh, the willingness to learn when we catch ourselves as having been deluded, say, wow, look at that. There was a, a meditation retreat I put myself on uh, quite some years ago now under, under extreme pressure, really extreme pressure, really limited a lot of input, there was very, very little stimulus on any level and as in isolation in this room for quite a long period of time and, and uh, I wasn't sleeping much it was, uh, it was quite a small room and, and then one morning I remember waking up at about 2 o'clock or 2.30 in the morning and, and wide awake and I'd had this dream and in this dream I was with Ajahn Sumato, my teacher and, and Ajahn Sumato was receiving a Buddha image, a beautiful Buddha image from a doctor. And uh, Ajahn Sumato took this Buddha image and immediately turned to me and passed it and gave it to me. And, and I was so delighted that, 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 that this happened. And, and I looked at the clock at the time in the dream and it said, I don't know, 4 o'clock or 4.30, one or the other. And uh, the impression that I got being on this very intense retreat and all on my own and perhaps you know, losing perspective a little bit was that at 4 o'clock, or 4.30, I was going to become enlightened. I had this absolute this conviction that I was going to become enlightened at 4 o'clock or 4.30. And 
And the dream was just the, the harbinger of this, was just telling me this was going to happen. And uh, I said, wow, gosh, I better get ready. <laughs> it's like 2.30 in the morning, and I, you know, it's not long till 4. What I don't know, is it 2 in the morning or is it 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Well, I don't know. Soon it'll be 4 in the morning and we'll see. Well, 4 in the morning passed. I said, oh, my goodness, I've got 12 hours to wait before I get enlightened. And it was, wow, it's quite a 12 hours, I tell you. I really, what's it going to be like? And, and, and as the day went by, I just got more and more frightened. And, well, obviously, I didn't get enlightened. <laughs> because I'm still here and I'm still ignorant and unfortunately I've got a lot of greed, aversion and delusion to still work with. But what I did notice from that delusion was that I am scared stiff of becoming enlightened. I, ego, me, doesn't want to get enlightened, really doesn't want to get enlightened at all, doesn't even want reality, doesn't want to know about reality. I just want stories, that's all I want. I just want stories to just keep me deluded, keep me happy, in my, this Hollywood fantasy world that really you know, doesn't want to know that I'm going to die, it doesn't want to know that all the suffering is, is based on my taking sides with liking against disliking, it doesn't want to know about Dhamma at all. Now, that's a great lesson. I'm very grateful for that dream. Yeah. I mean, getting enlightened might happen one day. I, I aspire towards that. But you don't have to wait until you get enlightened to learn from delusions. Delusions can be gifts. Making mistakes can be gifts. Whether it's a gift or whether it's a curse, it depends on how we approach it. If we procrastinate when we should act, then we just always avoid facing it. We always avoid honestly saying, this is greed, this is a poison, this is a toxin, or this is anger, or this is delusion. We always avoid it. Tardiness, irresolution. Yeah. If we want the way in its wisdom to become clear, then there's no room for procrastination. So I hope this evening my contemplation has some support for your practice. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>